Awesome. Thanks so much. Great to be with you tonight. If this is your first time, it's so great having you along here at Bridgman and to our online crew as well. Great to be sharing with you. Uh, we've been in a series in Romans uh, over the last few weeks, and it has been such a blessing. I know for me, it's been such a blessing um, diving into Romans. And so we continue tonight with Romans 7, and we've got a lot to get through, okay? So we're going to jump straight in from uh, Romans 7, verse 5. If you have your Bible with you or um, your phone with the Bible app on it, you can open that up. It'll be on the screens as well. This is Romans 7, verse 5. Paul says this, he says, For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the spirit and not in oldness of the letter. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin, in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good, so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful." We'll pause there for the time being. If you're a bit lost, you're in good company, okay? Don't worry. Uh, this is a, uh, perhaps one of the most debated, interpreted, controversial sort of parts in Scripture. You know, what is Paul saying? It seems like he's doing uh, literary gymnastics. He's jumping back and forth. It's really impressive, but it's quite, it's almost convoluted in a, in a way. Who is he referring to here? Paul, of course, being a Jew, knows all about the Mosaic law, that is the law that the Jews lived under. And it's fairly unanimous among scholars that he is referring to the Mosaic law here. But what do we make of all this talk about sin and law and death? To give a bit of an analogy that I'll I'll try and um, flow through this message, uh, my wife Lauren and I are in the early stages of teaching our little almost one-year-old little girl, Nora. We're trying to teach her about rules and boundaries for life at the moment. Um, And it comes, you know, it comes quickly upon you. And uh, one of her favorite words uh, at the moment is ta. Okay, pretty common, pretty normal for a baby to learn. Um, We still use ta as adults, right? Like please and thank you is ta, can be ta. Um, But Nora has, Nora's really taken to this word ta because um, she's really associated in her, in her mind that whenever we have some sort of food in our hands, she loves food, um, or something that resembles food, she'll say, ta, okay? And, and she, what she's assuming is that whatever we have in our hands is worth having for herself. And there's this little miscommunication or battle that can kind of happen when um, 
the, the thing that's in our hands is not really suitable for a baby or is just not fit for human consumption, you know? Uh, taking the bin out, for example, or holding the bin, she goes, pa, and you're like, no, not quite, not quite. Cutting up dinner, raw chicken in my hand, pa. Mm, no, try again, not quite right. Or taking or giving the dog some food, you know, a scoop of dog biscuits, and she says, pa. And you're like, no, sorry, no, I can't give you this. It's not good for you. Not everything can be given when she says, ta, you know. And that's a little hard to explain to a one-year-old, but we're getting there. She's getting, she's getting the hang of it. Um, as an example, though, I want you to imagine that um, in raising Nora, Lauren and I never told her to share her belongings. You know, imagine um, now as we're teaching her all these little things, you know, say please and thank you, say ta for when you get food. Imagine that we never showed her or told her that sharing her toys or her food or her clothes uh, with others is the right thing to do. And uh, let's say, fast forward 11 years from now, say she's 12 years old, and then say that we said to her, Nora, on your 12th birthday, now that you're 12, we're going to tell you that the right thing to do is to share. We want you to start sharing your things. We, in fact, we are telling you, this is the new standard, this is the new law. You need to share your things. From this point forward, we're giving you the law. Now, Nora would struggle with that because she would know, you know, assuming that, you know, she, she loves and respects us at 12 years old, I'm really hoping she does, um, assuming that, she would think in her mind, I really wanna do what's right. My parents have told me to do something. I really, you know, I want to do that. But she wouldn't be able to actually share because she's so used, by that point, she's lived her whole life, she's so used to having everything to herself. You know, imagine every time she said ta, she got that thing. But then whenever we said ta back, she didn't give it back to us. And that was just how we let her live her life. She would want to do well by us when we give her this law, but in all honesty, she wouldn't actually be able to all the time. Now, what's happened in this scenario? What's happened? Have we, as her parents, given her a rule which causes her to sin? Have we, are we being unreasonable here? You know, previously she had no idea that sharing was good, so when she didn't share before, did that mean that she was sitting before? You know, Paul asks this, the same rhetorical question in verse seven. He says, if sinful passions were induced by the law and bore fruit for death, do we end up saying that therefore law is sin? Of course not, he says. In fact, he says, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. With this case with Nora, the sin of self, of selfishness, has always, has always been there. You know, whether we told her to share or not, that desire to keep things all to herself has always been there, lying, underlying, it's been dormant, but it's always been there. And now our command, our law to her, hey, Nora, you need to share, that just exposes that sin for what it is. And why do we do that? As her parents, we're not saying, we're not thinking, hey, let's throw a lofty expectation on our, on our child. We, that, that law, that rule we give is enabled for her betterment, her bettering. Not only for her, but for others around her. As she engages in sharing with others, we all know this as adults, when you share with others, you are connected to others outside yourself. 
It's the right thing to do, to share. As Nora shares, um, she would engage in relationships. She wouldn't be ruled by having things her way all the time, all for her, always. She's only, she's not quite one, and we haven't seen full tantrum just yet. We see little snippets and we go, oh, we, we sort of know what's coming our way. But if she knew to share that, that we would be saving her from that, that sense of tantrum because she doesn't get things her way. And of course, we see as, as, um, as older than being one-year-olds and, and 12-year-olds that Sharing has a very real practical lived quality. It's the right thing to do. It is the right thing for her and for others, right? Nora now sits in this, this reality, in this new reality though, because she, um, she realizes that she cannot do what we've asked her to do. She knows she should. She knows she should share. But in knowing this, it just makes it so much more apparent how selfish she is. What is happening is that to her, sharing actually in that moment, it it looks like a death. It looks like some sort of death to her. But we know as the ones giving her that law that that law is actually life. Sharing is not death, sharing is life. To her, it looks like death. Let's continue reading from verse 14. Verse 14 says, we, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. But I see this different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. And he closes with this. He says, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with the flesh, the law of sin. There's a conflict that this uh, man is in that Paul is describing of his experience. And he refers a lot to flesh. And um, he talks a lot about this in Romans 7, 18. He says, I know there's nothing good that dwells in me that is in my flesh. There's nothing good that dwells in my flesh. And we have to, we have to think about this. What is he talking about? What is, what is, what is flesh? Because in, most of, in all of Romans, in fact, there is this dichotomy. There's this, there's this binary separation between living in the flesh and living in the spirit. And this word flesh, it's important for us to understand because Paul is not merely talking about physical flesh. We all exist physically. He's not just talking about that. For Paul, to be living in the flesh, to be fleshly means to 
uh, stands to mean that uh, you believe that you are apart from God. To be living in the flesh means to live as if you're apart from God, that you are separated from him, that you are God unto yourself. The flesh sees itself as something separate from God. Now, of course, this, this can't be the case because Romans eight thirty eight to 39 says this, neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. But can someone believe that they are separate from God and live as if so? Yeah, they can. They can ignore that there's, there's a God who's created them. They can ignore all those things. They can ignore that, that Jesus has come to redeem them. They can ignore those things, but it doesn't make it true. It doesn't make it reality. You know, if you think about this, a son or a daughter can go and, and, and leave their parents and run away, change their name. They can do all these things, but what remains, the truth, the reality is that they are still their parents' offspring. This is what Paul means by being fleshly. Romans 7 tells us a bit about what, what living in the flesh actually looks like on the daily. And if, and if, you, if we're reading that before and you felt that, oh, that is, that's me. Like I do what I don't wanna do. I don't do what I do wanna do. There's a sense in which we all, we can all sense that, all feel that. When someone's living in the flesh, they live in a disarray. The good they do not want to do, they, the good they want to do, they don't do, and they practice the very evil that they do not want to do. They're fractured. There's this, they exist as a fractured person. They're capable of knowing what they should do, but they're utterly powerless to do it. You know, everyone, everyone I think, knows that there is a moral law in, in our lives. That you can, we can argue about it. We can go down the apologetics route and we can argue over the nitty gritty, but at the end of the day, there is a moral law. Whether, we, whether someone's a, a Christian or not, there are things that they would believe that are, are morally, inherently, and universally wrong. It's wrong to cheat. It's wrong to lie. It's wrong to take something that isn't yours. And whether you can kind of um, you know, verbally sort of argue your way out of it. The, the reality, it, it is a reality. It's a truth across cultures, across, it's a universal sort of truth. Now, the Christian knows and the Jew knows that, that breaking these moral laws isn't just this arbitrary man-made thing. You know, it's not just social conduct or social uh, rules we're breaking, but it's actually the natural law of God. You know, the Christian and the, and the Jew knows, this is why Paul's talking, the Christian knows that, that these laws are, are not man-made, they're God-given. They're, there is a natural moral law. And hence, to break that natural law to, of God is to actually go against him. It's to turn away from him, and hence, it constitutes sin. The one who lives in the flesh then knows what they should do. They understand this moral law Jew or not, they know what they should do and how they should act, but they are utterly powerless to do so. And so, having being, um, having, living in the belief that you are not, uh, that you are separate from God, is the condition that this this fleshly person lives in. But it doesn't mean that they then don't depend on, on things other than God. 
they must depend on sources of, of what to them looks like life. Now, of course, to call these, these sources life is to call a, a dirty puddle on the ground the Pacific Ocean. It's, it's, it's nothing. It's, it's a facade. It's this illusion. It's not life. But to the one living in the flesh, this life source, life, is essential. It is everything. And I saw this billboard, actually I drive past this billboard all the time um, on my way um, home and it's for a brand of suits and the line that they've, they've gone with to um, advertise this brand is the relentless pursuit. I, I, it just hit me when I was at the 4pm, I was like, maybe it's a play on words, like pursuit, suit, I don't know. But, or maybe it's kind of saying, um, you know, the endless pursuit of fashion or the relentless pursuit um, rather Relentless pursuit of fashion, you know, like it's a constant pursuit. Maybe it's saying something like, um, wear this suit whilst you relentlessly pursue. Either way, the message is the same, isn't it? There is a relentless pursuit. Uh, when, we li- when we live in the flesh, there is a relentless pursuit for life. The fleshly exist in this condition, which means they have to, they've got nothing else. They have to pursue after a source of life. And so when God gives someone who's in this condition, when he gives them the law, when he gives them the truth, the true source of life to someone in this condition, what happens? Paul says this, he says, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. The true source of life resulted in death for Paul. Not because the source of life from God was death, but because it made so apparent that any other life source which is not of God is not of life. It is in fact, the the little puddle is not life, it is in fact Any life source that is not from God cannot be life, it is death. And so God, in giving us the truth through the law, reveals to us that any source of life that is not his is seen to be what it truly is. This is why Paul says, I I got given the commandment and I died. All our ties to that life source, whatever it may be, must be broken away. Our flesh must, must die. It feels like death to the flesh. Um, C.S. Lewis wrote many um, incredible, incredible books in his life. And um, I know that he'll be a, a fan favorite amongst here. But for me, the, there's this book called The Great Divorce, which is just by far the most profound for me. And, it, and it's, it's almost an analogy for this very topic, you know, this it, it, he gives an example of what it looks like to live in the spirit and what it looks like to live in the flesh. And I love how um, he, he characterizes these two things. He shows the interactions between the two and one of the running themes he gives to differentiate between the two is that the one who is in the flesh, that is the one who hasn't received the spirit of Christ, um, they all appear as ghosts. They're all insubstantial. They, um, they, 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 
you know, they're translucent. They're just, they're almost nothing. There's almost nothing to them. They appear as ghosts. Those who are of the spirit, though, are described as solid. They are real. They are physical. And uh, they are almost too bright at times. They're, They're too bright to behold by the narrator, by the antagonist. There's this one interaction I just want to share with you that, that kept coming up for me as I was reading through Romans 7 and reading through this, this wrestle between um, life in the flesh and in the spirit. And there's this man who's, who's one of the ghosts. He's, um, he's living in the flesh and he, um, he's described as carrying this little red lizard on his shoulders. And um, this little red lizard, it, it goes with him everywhere he goes. It's always there and it, it chirps in his ear tells him things, he tells it to be quiet, it still chirps, and it just sits there. It's almost like attached to him, like it's part of who he is at this point. And in this particular section of the book, to, um, this man with the lizard uh, comes into contact with, a, with the spirit, one of the, the um, spirits that are there. They sort of meet in this open field, a bit of a common ground, and then the, um, the, the man, the ghost, decides, I'm, I've had enough of this, I'm going home, this is all too much, I don't want to be in the presence of the spirit anymore. And so he, he goes to leave and, and the man with the lizard says to the spirit, he says, look, I'm off. Thanks for your hospitality, um, but it's no good. You know, like I, I told this little chap, talking about the lizard, I told this lizard he'd have to be quiet if he came here, um, which he insisted on doing, but he, he just won't stop. So I'll, I'll have to just go home. And the spirit says, well, would you like me to make him quiet? And the man goes, yeah, that'd be great. Actually, that'd be, that'd be awesome. Of course I would. And the spirit says, well, I'll kill him. I'll just kill him. And the, the man goes, whoa, whoa, whoa. You didn't say anything about killing him. You know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't bother you with that. I don't want to kill him. And the spirit says, well, it's the only way to make him quiet. It's the only way to make him stop. And the man says, well, that's, that's up for debate, you know? Like, I'm quite open to considering it, but it's, it's, you know, that's a bit of a new, new point, a new idea. I mean, for the moment, I just wanted to, like, keep him quiet. I don't want to kill him. The spirit again asks, do you want me to kill it? He says, honestly, I don't think there's, it's, there's a necessity for that. I don't, think that. I don't think we need to go that far. I think I'll be able to keep it under wraps now. I think I'm all good. Thank you for the offer. I actually think the gradual process would be better rather than just sort of killing it, you know, just sort of take this thing out slowly. Spirit says the gradual process is no use at all. He says, oh, don't you think? You know, well, I'll think over what you said. You know, it's a great point. It's great theory. I honestly will. In fact, I, I would let you kill it now, but as a matter of fact, I'm not feeling very well today. And um, I think it would be silly to do now. It wouldn't be the best idea. So I'll come back when I'm in full health and we can do the operation and we can do it then. This goes on back and forth, back and forth. And suddenly the lizard chirps up. The lizard says, be careful. He, he can actually, this spirit can kill me if he wants. And, um, and then you'll be without, he's talking to the, the ghost now, the man who is in, around, wrapped around. He says, then you'll be without me forever. You know, this spirit, he doesn't understand. It might be natural for him, but it's not for us. We can't be apart. I'll be good. He says to the man, you know, I admit I've sometimes gone too far in the past and I promise I won't do that again. Um, I'll give you all, you know, everything you want, all nice dreams and it'll be all sweet and, and almost a bit innocent. Suddenly the man, the ghost, comes to his senses. He says, no, all right. He says to the spirit, 
I want you to take this, take this lizard from me, kill it. And this is the description of what follows. I love Lewis's words here. He says, the ghost that is the man gave a scream of agony such as I'd never heard on earth. And the burning one, the spirit, closed his crimson grip on the reptile, twisted it while it bit and writhed and then flung it, broken backed on the turf. In that moment, I saw an unmistakably solid, growing every moment solider, the upper arm and the shoulder of a man. Then brighter still and stronger, the legs and hands, the neck and golden head materialized, and I saw the actual completing of a man, from ghost to man, immense and shining. At the same time, the lizard who was thrown on its back began to change. It started to, it started to grow. It grew bigger and bigger and began to change. Its flickering tail became a tail of hair before I realized that what stood before me was the greatest stallion I've ever seen, silvery white but with a mane and tail of gold. It's an incredible analogy that, from the mind of a, an incredible writer but also uh, the mind of someone who, who, who deeply knew that, that God wanted to redeem For this man, this ghost, he could not perceive of life outside that lizard on his shoulders. He, he, he knew deep down that it wasn't right, there was something wrong with it, but he couldn't. It was attached to him. It directed him, he, it controlled him. And he wanted freedom from it, but he, he actually didn't want the death that came with it. There was a truth that was good that he should do, put the lizard to death, but he couldn't do it. You know, for him, the death of his, of his flesh, of this lizard, would equate to his total death. That's what he thought. If this, lizard go, if this lizard goes, I go with it. But instead, we see that he goes from unsubstantial to substantial. He becomes real. He, start, he lives in, by, when the lizard goes, he is able to receive the spirit he becomes real and actual. At the end of Romans 7, Paul reaches this place at the end of his uh, almost testimony, sort of, so to speak. He reaches this place where he recounts how he's a prisoner of sin and he cries out and he uses these words. He says, who will set me free from the body of this death? This is the question that is in the hearts and minds of, of every man and woman since, since Adam. What or who will rescue me? Is it possible? I know things aren't as they should be and I know that there is a deficit and I, may, I might even know that I'm part of the issue. Who will set me free? Is it possible? Perhaps it is power that will set me free. Perhaps it's conquest says the world's leaders and, and, and rulers and commanders. Perhaps it's power. Maybe it's, it's art. Maybe it's self-expression, says the film and arts industry. Maybe, uh, maybe I gain life. Maybe what will set me free is it's actually all within somewhere and I just need to, uh, I just need to find it, something that's within me. Perhaps it's fortune, Perhaps it's my image, my reputation, my achievements through the eyes of others. These are all lizards we carry, all things on our shoulders, or once carried at least, 
And they can look like many things, but they all deceive, they all lie about who will save us. You know, Paul, straight after saying this, answers his own question. And um, if you caught Peter's sermon this morning, he mentioned that getting stuck with, it's not getting stuck, by the way, but getting stuck with preaching Romans 7 is, is hard because Romans 8 is just so good. And so, like he did this morning, you, you, I'm going to give you a little taste. You remember the little goodie bags that you get after you go to a party as a kid? You're going to leave with a Romans 8 goodie bag tonight. Paul answers his own question. He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Christ sets us free. Romans 8, 2 to 3, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not, could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, so that we now walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Then in verse nine, I know I'm really cutting someone's grass for next week, but in verse nine, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is alive because of righteousness. This question on, on our hearts, on our minds, who will set us free from these bodies of death? It is Christ who does, and only Christ who can. Christ gives us his spirit so that his spirit works in us. He dwells in us. If we receive him, he dwells in us. This is a huge shift. This is an absolute shift. You know, Paul, in all of his talk about not doing what he wants to do and then doing what he doesn't want to do, Romans 8, he doesn't live in that conflict anymore. He is in Christ. He is fully resolved. He is fully restored. He is no longer enslaved to sin, but instead he is enslaved to Christ. There's no fracture in him anymore. There is only Christ that remains in him. You know, to finish up this analogy of, of Nora, for Nora to, um, you know, to be able to actually share her things at, at 12 she can't actually rely on her own ability to share anymore. She's not going to be able to do it. She must embody us as her parents that are offering, that are, that are telling her to do this. She must, in a sense, share our spirit, our essence of, of sharing. But since Lauren and I are, are only living with, we're only living with Christ in us, Nora actually isn't embodying us. She's just embodying Christ's spirit in us. Yes, there is this pain. There's this pain, we, and we, we know that. The, the flesh must, must die. It must be done away with. And there is a pain there. But it is, it is but a pinprick compared to the freedom and joy and glory of life in the spirit. This is God's good news to us, this is, this is the, the shift. This is the new life in Christ, life in the spirit. This is the good news to the one who knows God's law, the Jew, and the one who doesn't know it, the Gentile. That God sent his son Jesus to set us free from slavery to sin, to cleave us away from the law of death and instead unite us to himself. 
And so if you don't know, if you have never heard this before, maybe you've been coming to church for years and, and, and the, the Spirit is, is revealing something to you. Maybe that you've made a life source, something about Christ, about the Spirit, rather than receiving the Spirit directly. You know, this man in this, in this story from the great divorce, he, he, he um, doesn't want to just hand over um, the lizard. He, ta- he's, he comes up with all sorts of excuses. He's like, another time. It's a great idea. I'll think about it. All these things. But I want to say to you tonight, don't, don't wait another moment. Don't hesitate another moment. Sin has been defeated by Christ. The power that sin holds over us is no longer. And so if you call yourself a Christian here tonight, don't, don't continue to live as if sin reigns. Live. We live by the Spirit. This is the beauty of God's good news. We live by the Spirit. If you've never come to this crossroads before, I want to say don't be deterred by the death of the self that must occur. Don't put it off saying things will get better, that I'll get things under control, that I can, I can do both. I can have both a bit of the flesh and the spirit. The flesh must go. The spirit must take hold. Let me reiterate, the life source that you're drawing from, if it's any life source but of God, it is nothing but murky, dirty water. And Christ is offering living, flowing As we come to worship, I want to leave you with just one final illustration from a commentator. They say this, Paul's understanding of human life under the reign of anti-God powers looks quite a bit like what we know about the horror of a child soldier. In many parts of the world, as we know, children are swept from their villages or off the streets or traded by parents desperate for food or protection. They become little more than slaves, you know, girls used for kitchen duty and boys wielding weapons, both of them used as bait. In many cases, they are forced to become soldiers. They have sin thrust upon them. And not just to become child soldiers, but eventually to become the ones who capture and use others. There is no escape. In many cases, there is not even the hope of escape as unrelenting ideology takes over their thoughts. They cannot help themselves. They cannot rescue themselves. They have nowhere to go. Their power consists only of self-destruction and the eventual destruction of others. Child soldiers can only be rescued. They can only be redeemed and rescued. And the power must come from the outside to redeem them and to rescue them. They must be plucked from their situation and taken out. What Paul is showing us is that we are all or once were enslaved in some sense as a child soldier. The powers to which we are enslaved might be less visible, but nonetheless, yet this is the, the the great news, the good news, it is Christ, the suffering Messiah, who is sent to break the universal, otherwise relentless hold of sin and death. It is only him who can do this. There is, there is no striving, there is no way we could even save ourselves. It is only him who can do this work. It's Christ who has broken this hold of sin and death. 
It is Christ who reaches into our situation. It is Christ who rescues us out of it. And it is Christ who now lives in us. This is why Paul said, it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. As we come to worship tonight, there's, a, there's an opportunity for us that maybe have never, have never come to grips, come to this crossroads before where we go, I, I, didn't, I didn't know. I just had to invite the Spirit in. Maybe there's some of us here tonight who've been like, oh yeah, I knew, I knew I had to invite the Spirit in, but I thought I had to do a bit more. Like I thought I had to, you know, do a bit more. There's an opportunity tonight to say, God, would you rescue me? Would you, would you breathe your Spirit into me? Would the things of my flesh die? And so as we worship, I, I, I pray you take that opportunity Say that directly to God, you know. It might be the posture that you take. It might, be a, it, it might be a physical posture that you take to reflect that inner spiritual posture that is happening there. Let me pray for us as we give thanks, as we worship. I love the lines in this song about there is no higher power, there's no... Um, He's above all things. He's above all authorities. He's above all names. Is King Jesus. Let me pray for us tonight and let's respond. Let's give him our worship. Jesus, we thank you. It's your spirit within us, Lord, that we can even, that we can even know you, that we can even come to this place, Lord. It's your grace flooding our hearts. It's your blood coursing through our veins. Jesus, we, we, we pray that we would not lose sight of that. Holy Spirit, come dwell in those who've never opened themselves to you. Where there's things that are, are, that are blinding, Lord, would you reveal your truth and may the, the, the facade, the illusion of, of life die away, Lord. Lord, we thank you for your, your abundance of love and grace and mercy towards us. And we, we just rest in it. We just say thank you. Great God, we thank you that we now live in the Spirit. And pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, let's stand together. Let's worship. Let's spend time glorifying God. Let's sing.
true. He's a holy and righteous God. And I just, um, yeah, let me just read this Scripture to you. It's uh, Psalm 46, but it's an important Scripture because I'm just conscious that, you know, as Trevor shared, uh, you know, as Trevor shared, there's stuff, there's stuff that you are wrestling with, stuff that you've got to face this week and maybe over the next coming months, there's situations and circumstances that you're, you're kind of just struggling with maybe at the moment. And you know deep down, it's like, I can't overcome this. You know deep down, I don't have the strength or the ability uh, to overcome this. And I just wanted to give an opportunity just to pray and say, God, I need you in this. I really need you in this. And so I wanna read this Psalm to you. It states, states this in Psalm 46, verse one. It says, God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. And I'm just conscious tonight that maybe you are facing a bit of trouble and thinking, I don't know how to overcome. I don't know how to move forward in this. And I just wanted to pray for you tonight. Father, actually just in this moment of prayer, in this attitude of prayer, if you just wanna take just a few seconds, but just to say, God, I need your help in this area. Often we have God as a last resort rather than first priority. Maybe you're trying to do all this stuff in your own strength. Why don't you just cry out to Him now and say, God, I need you. I need you. Father, thank you that you hear every single prayer. And Lord, I just know there's some in this room because this is the reality of life. You say in this life, you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. And so the reality is that for many of us, we're struggling and dealing with situations and circumstances. You know what? We just cry out to you. We just call upon you, the creator of the universe tonight and say, God, would you help us in this situation? Would you give us discernment and wisdom to know how to navigate through this? Would you lead us? Would we know your nearness and your presence as we, as we push through these circumstances? And would you help to bring about a resolution or a solution in this, in this great God? We really do pray. And we just wanna thank you tonight that we can call upon you. We wanna thank you that you are with us and ever present help, Father God, in those times of need. Thank you that you never leave us nor forsake us. And I wanna specifically pray for those this very moment that are facing something significant this week, that they're dealing with a trial, that they just think this is impossible to overcome. But I pray you empower them by your Holy Spirit. Thank you that you are there for us. Thank you that you can empower us. And I pray that you do that for them, great God. It would just be another miracle story of your work and a testimony to your goodness, great God, we pray. So we thank you, Lord. We thank you for your word and how it's an encouragement to us. Uh, continue to lead us and guide us this week as we go our separate ways, we pray. We honour you tonight, great God, and we pray these things in Jesus' Name. Amen. Amen. Really good to have you here. Great to have you online. And uh, as I said earlier, if you want to hang out, catch up afterwards, feel free to do that. Lasagna for dinner. You can grab some lasagna. Hang out in the courtyard area. God bless you. Have an awesome week. We'll see you soon.